rhythm of politics today is the permanent volatility of the financial market. That's just one of the assertions in George Megalogenis's book, Australia, Between Recession and Renewal. George has worked in the media for 30 years, just shy of Alan Kohler's pedigree, as he noted when the two met in the spotlight. While they agree on many aspects about what's gone wrong with our politics, they challenge each other about the specific moments that hindsight reveals as markers of change. They begin their conversation in the Howard era. So, George, I suppose the core argument you're making is about infrastructure, but it's very interesting. You, you actually quote John Howard in, uh, in defending his tough line on asylum seekers as saying it wasn't popular, I accept that, but one of the things it did is facilitate a sharp increase in support in the community for orthodox immigration. And so, and it is clear if you look at the numbers, there was a big increase in immigration during Howard's time, which he says, as you quote him saying, was supported by their asylum seeker policy. But now here we are five or seven years down the track and the infrastructure of Australia can't cope. Is it correct to join those dots? It'd be interesting to, to have another conversation with him with the benefit of the hindsight of the well, property boom, possibly property bubble in Melbourne and especially Sydney. The story of the last 15 years, if I take it in steps, the Tampa episode, Border Protections, the 2001 federal election, and that's in the shadow of September 11. So that's uh, almost a defining moment for the US. You could almost mark their decline from that point onwards. It was a defining moment for us as well, that election and the Tampa incident. But our economic trajectory has gone in a completely different direction. We missed their tech wreck in 2001. Don't have a recession then. We thought we might have a recession 2002, 2003. But along comes China, which gives us another lift. We've survived the GFC. But on the specific question of immigration, and I know I had these conversations with John Howard at the time, uh, especially coming out of the 2001 election, it was after that election that he increased the intake for the first time in the life of his government because in the first term of his government, and I think he was reacting in a way to Hanson in 96 through 96 through 98, discreetly cutting the intake by about 10,000 a year. They sort of held it steady in the second term, but after 2001, he's taken the lid off it. But what he's done is he's changed the model. So in the past, there was sort of ultimate discretion for minister and around the cabinet table, they set the target each year. But he moved discreetly at first and then it became apparent that this had unintended consequences, which turned out to be good ones. It became an almost totally demand-driven model. We moved from a system in the 80s and the 90s where about two-thirds of all immigrants were under the family reunion category. And on an annual basis, we're taking about 80 or 100,000 permanent settlers a year. Once we switched from family reunion to skilled and once we let the market and the tertiary sector pretty much dictate the intake, raw numbers went from about eighty to 100,000 a year up to 190,000 um, for the last year that we've got statistics for. Because it's interesting, the national accounts show that per capita uh, GDP has actually been flat, yes. if not in recession. And also income, national income, has been in recession, right? So to what extent do you think the fact that we haven't had a recession is due to immigration. This is one of the magic questions. We could sort of argue the merits of which part of the active open model and the stimulus and the you know, rather rapid cut in interest rates and the exchange rate depreciation helped us through 2008-9. But the question to my mind now, especially the last five years, since the first peak of the mining boom in 2011, the terms of trade came off very sharply. In ordinary times, 
that would have led to a recession in Australia. And remember, we've had an epic mining cycle, one that looks more like the 1850s than any other point in our, um, in our sort of federated history. And I think when you've had an income shock like that, and this is a you know, big positive income shock through the uh, early part of the last decade up until essentially the GFC, terms of trade turn in 2008 nine, they come back a little bit and then they start to fall from 2011 through to about 2015, 2016. What was the thing that was different uh, through that period to all other past episodes? And that is that the door stayed open. So we were literally doubling the intake through this period uh, when in the past, when governments would have controlled the intake at the cabinet table, they would have said, hang on a minute, got to slow down on the global economy. We've just dodged the bullet of a, of a great recession. Hang on a minute, mining booms over, uh, budgets in permanent deficit. What do we do now? Are we going to let more migrants in? So the political decision would have been, and this would have been a knee-jerk, would have been to have, to have at least put a lid on the intake or cut it. Now, I, I, let's work the counterfactual here. Alan, what do you think would have happened if we'd halved the intake over the last five years? If we had half a million fewer people coming to Australia in the last five years? Because that, that would be the total sum of, of an intake reverting to 80s or 90s levels. I think we would have been in recession. Yes. John Howe didn't know this when he did this in 2001, 2002, 2003. So in the short term, he's thinking politically about... What do you mean he didn't know? He, he knew what the economic effect of increasing immigration was. I think he was. wanted to do it, but I don't, think, I don't think either he or Paul Keating before him, who began the switch from family reunion to skills, I don't think either of them could have thought coming out of a, of a super mining cycle that it would be the thing that would keep us growing it would extend the winning streak from 20 to 25 years. It's really the last five years, I think, where the immigration program has come into its own. And I think it's come into its own because employers, where there were skill shortages, were able to still fill them from overseas. Uh, the tertiary sector, which is our, you know, our, our non-physical uh, largest export earner, apart from coal and iron ore, it's the part of the services economy that's really taken off in the last 20 years. In the so what you're account. calling out is that there's a cost to this. Yes, it's created the lack of a recession, growing GDP, but then the cost isn't just the housing boom, it's more broadly infrastructure deficit as well. Yeah, so here's, um, here's the way I look at it. So politically, uh, you know, sort of masterful decision, it does begin with Keating, but it sort of, it, it sort of takes form in the Howard model, uh, which is the demand-driven immigration model. But I don't think any politician, whether it's at a state level, say in a state like Victoria, where they were open to growth, or a state like New South Wales, or other Bob, under Bob Carr, they declared Sydney closed. I don't think anybody at the state level, and certainly not at the federal level, understood what the consequences of the doubling of the intake would be. Now, in raw terms, population would increase by about two million a decade for each decade after the after the Second World War, with a bit over half that coming from net natural increase. The doubling of the intake, the immigration intake, means that 2 million became 3 million in the first decade of the 21st century, an extra million people, 100,000 a year coming from overseas. Now, more than half our population growth is sourced overseas, and we know it's still coming. We ran budget policy on a 80s or 90s basis, which is sell what you can, try and maintain an operating surplus, and if there's a bit of extra money, chuck it back at the voter, the swing voter. Adding an extra 100,000 people a year to your population uh, over and above, you know, what was you know, not the world's best uh, infrastructure regime before then, the market's just done one thing. It's, it's, it's pointed upwards in terms of residential construction. So a lot of apartment towers trying to fit, trying to fit all the people in. 
And most of the migrants, by the way, are just going to Melbourne or Sydney. Most of them. Most of the most of the sort of the skilled migrants. And you look around most of the most of the cities now, and this is an issue also in Brisbane to a lesser extent in Perth. Uh, might even be an issue in Adelaide. Do, do you one think, day. by the way, before you go on, do yeah. you think that it would be possible for the government to actually redirect them to encourage them to go somewhere else? Well, this is a really good question. I think as you look down the track for the next ten or twenty years, and if you assume a permanent elevation in your intake, uh, do you really want them all to go to Melbourne or Sydney? Well, you don't, but what can you do about that is the question. Oh, I don't know, I don't know. We haven't had this debate yet. We haven't had the planning debate yet. We haven't had the land use debate yet. We haven't had the what would Australia... What well, should been, Australia look like with 35 ever million since, people? Ever since Whitlam and before, there's been decentralisation discussions. There's been talk by the politicians oh, about we, how we, we need certainly decentralisation. Had them, we certainly had them in the it's past. It's just never worked. Yeah, we've had them in the past. They go all the way back to Billy Hughes. Billy Hughes was talking about it after the First World War. What were the same? There you go. Your memory goes longer than me. No, I wasn't there, of course, but when I read up, some of the speeches he gave after the end of the First World War on soldier settlements and the like was about moving uh, the new arrival to the hinterland to be able to secure the continent from what in those days I thought would be a Second World War beginning with the Japanese. He didn't want any more people going to those gleaming jewels on the coastline, as he called them, those, those big metropolitan cities. Gleaming jewels. He called them gleaming jewels. There's another one, and I should be saving this for another forum, but that's all right, I'll share it with you. I read, I read ages ago that uh, Henry Lawson was one of the first people to talk about decentralisation in the 1890s. He thought there were too many people in Sydney and he, needed to, and he thought government should do something well, he was to one send them. him to the bush. Well, he went on his own <laughs> and came back a very poor man, but uh, with a great literary, um, with a great literary uh, canon. The debate's been had in the past... But in the last 15 years, it's been staring us in the face, but we haven't been able to confront the question. We can't even face the question because I think, and this is one of the things I've been trying to argue uh, in, in, in sort of the latest couple of pieces that I've written, and that is the open model has served us well up until this point, but there's something that's missing, and the thing that's missing is that government isn't looking at the planning question. I don't think it knows how to do it. I think we've got a generation of politicians who've been raised in a very combative political environment, uh, but thinking that the economy... Well, it's more than combative. It's, it's actually it's a, a laissez-faire yeah. political environment. Ever since Reagan, the whole, uh, whole flavour of uh, government has been about government's the problem, not the solution. Yes. So they're, so they're almost hardwired to going to war on the last bit of government intervention <laughs> when I think, I think what the market is telling them, and I think what the... What, well, certainly the polls are telling them this, they need to reinvest. But they need to rethink the model. They don't need to tear down the neoliberal model. I'm talking to uh, George Megalogenis, who's uh, written Balancing Act, Australia Between Recession and Renewal, which is a um, started off as a um, quarterly essay and is now a very fine book. There's two other as aspects to it which we need to look at. One is the budget. Now, there's another defining moment that you talk about, um, which was 1998, which was the last piece of reform, GST, was the last piece of unpopular reform that Australia's had. And uh, what you talk about is the fact that John Howard, after having a near-death experience in that election, said never again. And so at the end of his term, or to in the second half of his term, there was some massive giveaways. Yeah, and so he and Costello locked in expenditure that we're still having to deal with. We are. And in fact, not only did they lock in expenditure we're still having to deal with, they changed the dialogue between government and voter. All the way through, even in Goff's day, 
when he was being an interventionist and certainly through Hawke Keating and in the first, first half of the Howard Costello government, um, all the discussion was about trade-off. If I want to create room here, I have to take something away from there. And I remember we'd been sitting in budget lockups through the 80s into the 90s and we'd always looked at both sides of the balance sheet. We were taught to look that way. Okay, what's in it for you? Well, we're going to net out this tax cut with the spending cuts that come with it or the change in, in the definition of some tax rate there or some entitlement there. I think what happened to Howard, and this is where I think he confused he confused the surge in income that was coming through the budget through the first phase of the China boom. He thought that was all a function of the grand reforms of the previous 20 years and he thought that the GST was the cherry on the top of the cake and now they were in windfall territory because the structure of the budget was sound. In fact, yes, they were in windfall territory, but it was temporary, it wasn't permanent. But in the meanwhile, every budget from 2004 to 2007, I've counted them up. In fact, if you go even back to the 2002 budget, from 2002 to 2007, every budget's a giveaway budget. And that's not just the election year budgets, it's every budget. So the first term, uh, sorry, the first year and the second year of a parliamentary term and in the third year, tax cuts not offset. Family payments, not offset. Baby bonuses, not offset. Uh, concessions to retirees, not offset. Pensioner bonuses, self-funded retiree bonuses, uh, school kids bonuses. In effect, they ran out of um, um, tax cuts for some households. So they had to pay them bonuses over and above. I remember Peter Costello came to us in one of the lockups, and this would have been about 2005 or 2006, and he said family with a couple of kids, we can't give them any more tax cuts. We're going to have to find another way to give them money. So they went and did the superannuation thing. <laughs> so this raises the question, it seems to me, about whether Peter Costello was a decent treasurer. Now, you don't actually deal with that. I mean, I, I, I invite oh, you... I think it's to, unstated, I, yeah. I, it's I, it is question. unstated, and I think um, I'm inviting you to comment on it now because I reckon we've had a succession of absolutely dreadful treasurers, uh, including the current one, Scott Morrison, Joe Hockey, Wayne Swan for such a long time, terrible treasurers. Uh, but the conventional wisdom is that Peter Costello was our last decent treasurer and was actually a good treasurer. But I, it seems to me he was a shocker because, because he did what you said. He had a succession of giveaway budgets and he did not stand up to Howard. Yes. And he, um, but he would argue, and I've, 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 walked through, I've walked through his office and I've seen all the page ones from the budget liftouts. The page one of every Australian from 1996 to 2007 is up on his wall and they're all about the surpluses. Uh, and so he, he looks at that. It's quite emblematic that this is the thing that's in his office. He looks at that. He says, I left the budget in good shape and then the Labor Party blew it. Uh, the question we don't know the answer to is if he was still treasurer when the GFC hit and he realised that there was a structural hole in the budget and it was partly to do with uh, what he and Howard had done. Not totally due to that, but partly due to it, would he have dug them out of but it? But I'm saying he didn't leave the budget in good shape. Yes, it was a surplus, but that's not the, no, no, that's not the measure. I'm, I'm agreeing with you. What I don't know, I'm not trying to be a politician about this by, by dodging your question. <laughs> yes, what you I, are. What I don't know is what he would have done next. And what, what would he have done next? So the Treasury advice would still have been the revenue will come back, and I think he would have compounded the error. In fact, I'm, I'm probably leaning towards he was a shocker as well. Uh, Look, I think, the bigger, I think the bigger issue, and you've alluded to this, is that the conversation between he and John Howard was not your traditional Prime Minister-Treasurer conversation. The conversation with Bob Hawke and Paul Keating was Bob Hawke 
was a populist, inclined to, to more popular measures than would otherwise be the case. And Paul Keating uh, made a point of telling all of us in the press gallery that he'd pulled Hawke up on this issue or he pulled Hawke up on that issue. And in fact, Keating to this day will admit that they were a little too fastidious and they kept the budget in surplus for a year longer than they needed to through the 1991 recession. Costello can't tell an equivalent story. And in fact, what Costello will do is tell you about the tax cuts he insisted on and he says, oh, I didn't like John Howard's uh, uh, handouts. So it seemed to be a competition between Santa Clauses in that government versus Scrooge versus Santa Claus in the, uh, in the Hawke-Keating government, which you think is closer to your balance. I think looking forward, what happened after Howard and Costello, and I think the switch does come, and I think you've identified this, the switch does come after the implementation of the GST. They go into uh, sort of a free money phase trying to buy themselves another term. And remember what Howard's incentives were. He thought he could govern for another couple of terms and approach Menzies' record for longevity. What followed, Rudd Swan and especially Gillard Swan, treasurers and prime ministers who saw the world the same way, uh, sort of poll-driven, uh, sort of more factionally inclined, no tension, no creative tension between them. So that's a black mark against that model. That's the second black mark against that model. And you also saw it between Abbott and Hockey. With Abbott and Hockey, you had two people who wanted to go gung-ho and sort of broke every rule in politics, which is tell the people it was their fault that they broke their promises. And then couldn't even, in fact, I've, let's remind ourselves of what happened in that 2014 budget. They didn't even improve the bottom line for all the unpopular measures. No, that's right. Because <laughs> they still had baked into that budget um, some extraordinary handouts like the paid parental leave, the escalation of the paid parental leave scheme. They had taxes on business and tax cuts for business. They had handouts for families and, you know, really punitive measures against families. I couldn't, um, I couldn't for the life of me work out why you would go to so much trouble to hurt people and at the same time tell them you're not hurting them. Which brings us to a section in your book, I don't think it's a chapter, it's a section headed The Grim Legacy of 2010. So explain oh, to us. Oh, I don't even want to remember it, Alan, to be honest. That, that was the election when it, that was the election. I think both sides were unprepared for that election because I don't think either side thought they'd have a leadership change that would lead them to a Gillard versus Abbott scenario. The parties weren't ready. The leaders certainly weren't ready. And in fact, that was, that was what well, with hindsight now, a lot of democratic um, systems have, have, have had similar brain snaps. We just had ours first. We had ours in 2010. It was, uh, it was bereft of all um, policy coherence. It was, you know, Gillard was a long way in front, coasted, got into trouble when Rudd started leaking. And then Tony Abbott hid for a couple of weeks because his poll numbers improved every time he stayed out of the media. And it was impossible to get a, to get a, uh, to get a line, to draw a line through it as a reporter and I'd covered a few of them by this stage, to be able to draw a line through as a reporter to tell your reader what it meant. It just seems to me that what you're talking about, um, perhaps I'm sort of expressing my own yeah. views and biases here, but, the, but that period of 2010, uh, 2010 to perhaps 2013 really established the polarisation of Australian politics. Yes, yes. And you referred just before to a piece where I wrote in The Australian I blamed the Liberal Party for the failure of our energy policy. But actually... I, I mean, I think it's possible to blame Abbott for a lot of the polarisation individually and his staff. Except it was there for him to play with. See, is he a cause or an effect? So, you know, if you go, if you go to just the, uh, the individual theory of these things 
he'd had to have been a genius to be able to make the Australian electorate that angry, to be able to accept anything that came out of his mouth. In fact, the Australian electorate was sort of heartily sick of him and he couldn't even see out a term as Prime Minister. And I don't, you know, I'll say that with the greatest respect to him. It was, it was easy to be an opposition leader in that environment post the GFC. Those first couple of years after the GFC where people like myself and yourself are telling everyone that we've dodged the biggest bullet and, in fact, this has never happened in our, in our sort of federated history before. You might find some examples in the 19th century where we're doing better than the rest of the world. But the Australia we grew up in, we didn't expect this Australia to be able to be the last rich nation standing after a, after a very deep global recession. Now, in that world, the Labor Party were looking for praise and I don't think they understood how, uh, how offensive that presentation to the people of Australia was because, you know, unemployment rate had gone from four to six. People are taking a 20% hit on their retirement savings. Um, not only did the unemployment rate rise, but, you know, the sort of casualisation of work accelerated. Um, but leaving aside the politics of it, they actually... Sorry, you were going to... Yeah, no, 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 keep, no, ask me the question. Yeah. No, but the, 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 leaving aside the politics of it, they actually failed then subsequently and the, the Liberal Party coalition also did to get the budget back. Yes, yes. So there are a couple of things that definitely went wrong. So even before we go to the destruction that Abbott wrought on the system, Labor didn't understand... I don't think Labor didn't understand the reasons for the success uh, in 2008-9, dodging the GFC, and they didn't understand that there was only a very narrow window to do the budget repair, and that is essentially in that same period that the Reserve Bank was uh, tightening monetary policy again, coming out of the first emergency We've now been totally whacked because there's great stagnation across the Western world and um, we're, we're now dealing with permanent. Um, this is crazy. We're going to be looking at 20 years of deficits for a country that's still growing. I can't... I, you know, look, this is obviously... This might even be a conversation for another time. It's quite an extraordinary thing just in the fiscal setting, that in the fiscal setting to be that wacky. But what Abbott did, and this is... Uh, Sort of, sort of take your point a bit further. What Abbott did, which I'd never seen before in my lifetime, and you've only got a couple more years on me, but you're obviously around for maybe a decade longer than me. What Abbott did that I'd never seen before is go to work and say completely the opposite of what he said the previous day and not care. And no one, and it's not that no one in the media was able to pull him We're up. We're seeing it again now with Trump. Yes. But yes. But yes that's... He was able to do that. Not only did he not care, he didn't care because he knew the people didn't really care. So he runs a scare campaign on, uh, on the cost of living. So he essentially takes Labor on from the left with a consumer revolt on, uh, on energy prices. And, but this is, this, this is where I, I'm harsh on him. I know you are. I know Laura Tingle is especially, of, of the old guard. Um, he had no idea what he was going to do for, with power when he got it, I government when he got it. He had no idea that energy security is one of the epic challenges of the grand transition of the 21st century. He didn't care. And so he thought he could wing it. I've winged it all the way to get to government and I can continue to wing it. But remember what he did in getting the leadership off Malcolm Turnbull? He stopped, he stopped Rudd and Turnbull from cutting a deal on, on placing a price on carbon emission, which would have been the lowest cost way to deal with climate change. And I think a lot of energy companies will tell you if, they could, if Australia could have its time over again, it would have got that conversation right in 2009. But remember, Gillard did get a carbon tax up in 2012 and we know emissions start to come down. The world didn't end in 2012, 2013. But I'll never forget that, that moment when in Parliament when, the, uh, when Abbott and his team managed to get the carbon tax repealed 
And they, they had a big so, group uh, hug. They yeah. had a, a big group hug. I think they were even drinking champagne. They certainly were that night. And there was this jubilation among them. That well, okay, done but, here's, that. But, but so here's the test. We've been living on this lower cost regime for how many years now? Three years now. Yep. Emissions are up and the supply is not secure. That's right. So it's actually their regime. And, uh, you know, you, you, you've actually got to shake your head about it because you can't do that much more but shake your head. You can't get too angry about it because you lose your professional detachment. But it's actually put us in the worst position, the worst possible position imaginable, and that is creating, and this goes back to the Abbott legacy, creating almost this permanent cycle now of if one side comes up with an idea, the other side feels duty-bound or oppose it. That's right. That means that the next change of government, Labor is going to be undoing what the coalition had done. And I don't know about you, but I haven't really seen it to that extent before in my no, life. In a, in a, I can't find, uh, and I've read as deeply as you possibly can on these things, I can't find another precedent in Australian politics for that. This is something that's been occurring in the States, in the US, for the last 10 or 20 years. And in fact, the polarisation in America should have been the signal to Australia not to go down that road. In fact, if you ask, if you ask most pollsters on both sides of politics, what's the one thing they tell you in the groups? And they'll say, we don't want to go down the American road, not on health, not on guns, not on sort of religious fundamentalism of the Christian variety. Um, we certainly don't want the inequality that the Americans have got and we just don't want our president, embar- our, our leaders embarrassing us. But this, the practice of politics and how it infects uh, the formulation and the, uh, and the debate around public policy is very Americanised. So moment. let's talk, talk finally about the present. Yes. Um, do you, so Turnbull and Shorten are locked into that, still into that framework. Um, firstly, do you think that either of them can break out of it the way they are, their characters, who they are? Um, and secondly, do you think the Turnbull is going to last? Uh, second question first. It's hard to see Turnbull seeing out the term. And, and if he were to see out the term and they didn't replace him on the eve of the election, the coalition would lose the election anyway. I mean, there is no precedent for a government going into uh, seeking a third term with such a tight such a tight majority. They only need to lose a seat to lose a majority and about three or four seats will cost them government. And they're 45, 55... Uh, regardless uh, of where the polls are, the breakout... See, Labor have been living now with a sort of 10 percentage point separation from their primary vote, which has gone over the Greens, and they've been living with that for about 10 or 15 years. But they've shown in this uh, election cycle, at the last election they went close, and in Victoria they got back after a single term with a lower primary vote. Uh, Dan Andrews won the election a couple of years ago in Victoria of a lower primary vote than Joan Kerner lost in 1992. So Labor have learned to live with the separation of 10% of their base off to the Greens. The Coalition are just confronting a structural separation of their base vote over to one nation and others. It's actually 10% as well. It's 10%. It is literally 10%. But for them, going from uh, low to mid-40s down to mid-30s is catastrophic because essentially what the Coalition is is a high-income metropolitan party and a small business party, and a regional party. So Liberals plus Nationals. One Nation takes the Nats out in the, in the bush. This is essentially what the electoral math is, and makes a lot of the cosmopolitan Liberal members feel very, very edgy suddenly because Labor Green looks a little more mainstream to them than the, than the sort of chase to the right to try and bring back that One Nation voter. So I think, I th- I think the um, Coalition are in for a world of hurt. Uh, look, I wouldn't be surprised if Malcolm Turnbull lost the leadership uh, in the next 12 to 18 months. 
And I wouldn't be surprised also that the next leader almost felt compelled to go into election and they got smashed. Now, the other question is, Bill Shorten, can he fix it? In fact, Bill Shorten is profiting profiting in the same way that Tony Abbott was profiting from the from the destabilisation of the system, the sort of separation of policy logic from... Well, he's not only just profiting, he's pursuing it. Yeah, no, no, he's going as hard as he can. I know I know that both sides will tell you that they're also doing policy work at the same time that the leader was, you know, was being a battering ram. But look, I, I don't see I don't see any clue that Bill Shorten is any different from this crowd, from the crowd um, that have brought us to this point. And remember, when Malcolm Turnbull got the leadership at the end of 2015, his promise was he was going to do the big reset. He was going to go back to, you know, he wasn't going to, he wasn't going to uh, insult you with slogans. We're going to have nuanced policy debates. That lasted all of three months before he had a panic going into 2016. I don't see Bill Shorten becoming a prime minister who suddenly morphs into a uh, orator. It's not not in his character. He probably thinks it is, but I think the world we're operating in. What's that first speech going to sound like? Is he even going to get permission? Like, I think, I think if you break the system to the extent that both sides have been breaking it, the expectation that the day after a victory, which is one on a negative rather than a positive agenda, that suddenly you can flick the switch back to positive? Yeah, well... It's, well, it's, especially it's, after the system has been um, going out its way to not solve some of the obvious problems that we've had the last 10 years. I honestly don't see it. it you know, look, to be honest, I'm very pessimistic in the short term, but my... I was going to say, that's a pessimistic yeah. note on which to end, George. But my character type is very optimistic. So <laughs> pessimist in the short term, optimist in the long term. I actually think Australia is still marked for quite an extraordinary 21st century. Of all the, if you think it through, of all the developed nations, it's us and Canada. New Zealand's probably too small to matter in the in the sort of first world hierarchy. You know, we're the 12th largest economy by size. We're about the only the only Western nation, for want of a better term, that's been climbing the global income ladder as China has climbed it. I know there's symbiosis there, both with the quarry and with the immigration program, but the, there still is a lot of upside. The, the difficulty, as I view the short term, is that you can't sit them down and get them to actually think about the next 10 or 20 years because there's no muddle through scenario for Australia. If you plan for success, you're more likely than not to get it. If you play politics on a daily basis, you're more likely than not to screw it up in the long term. Thanks, George. Thank you, Alan, for indulging me. I've been talking to George Megalogenis, journalist and author of Balancing Act, Australia Between Recession and Renewal.